Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today noted lecturer, and educator, Rabbi Ken Spiro. Rabbi Spiro is a senior lecturer and researcher at Asia Torah in Jerusalem. Additionally, Rabbi Spiro is a licensed tour guide from the Israel Ministry of Tourism. Rabbi Spiro graduated from Vassar College with a BA in Russian language and literature, earned a master's degree in history from the Vermont College of Norwich University, and Rabbi Spiro has rabbinic ordination in Yeshiva Eishat Torah, as we mentioned, from Jerusalem. Rabbi Spiro has authored a number of books, including World Perfect, The Jewish Impact on Civilization, Crash Course, Crash Course in Jewish History, and Why a Tiny Nation Plays Such a Huge Role in History. And today we will be discussing a fascinating and very relevant topic in Jewish history. We will be comparing Jews in Christian lands versus Jews in Muslim countries. Um, just to start off again, Rabbi Spiro, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. What period of time and in what location covers what is called the golden age of Jewish-Muslim relations? So, Generally speaking, it's the 8th to the 11th century, more or less, from the Muslim conquest of Spain in 711 till the mid-11th century, which actually covers a period that's called the Umayyad dynasty. The Umayyads originally were actually ruling out of Syria. The Umayyads are the first dynasty to rule over Jerusalem. The difference being is that the Abbasid dynasty takes over the Umayyad dynasty uh, in the, about 750 of the Common Era, not too long after they come to Jerusalem, which is 638, and uh, the remaining Umayyads basically flee to Spain. And you have that golden age of a very tolerant uh, Muslim dynasty in which non-Muslims, Jews, and Christians flourish in a very unusual relationship in the history. And what were the major day-to-day -day features of that golden age in the relationships between the Jewish community and the Muslim communities and Muslim authorities? So what, what we need to understand is background information is that in Islamic law, there's an idea of dimitude, which is, you know, when the Muslims who rapidly expand during this period of time, the first, you know, Muhammad, uh, he's, he's, his death is in 632. And Islam in the next 150 years is going to expand very rapidly, absorbing the entire Middle East and North Africa and getting across to Spain. And it takes another 700 years to get out to you know, the Far East, to the largest Muslim nation in the world today, which is Indonesia. And it's also an important background to understand that while most Arabs are Muslims, most Muslims aren't Arabs. Very important feature. We kind of conflate the two together, but there are actually, you know, there's 22 states of the Arab League, but there's, I think, 56 countries that have Islam as their religion, and the largest Islamic countries in the world are not Arab. Indonesia and India, which is Hindu, has the second largest, uh, you know, Muslim population with a minority of 400 million people. Um, but in Dimi law, as Islam expands, it's absorbing lots of non-Muslims, because Islam behaves not just as a religion, but also as an empire. And they literally physically absorb into their expanding sphere different Islamic dynasties, many other countries and peoples and faiths, 
And Islam, which is a legalistic religion, uh, basically defines two groups of people. Pagans uh, have no future in Islam. They, they cannot, you can't practice paganism. You have to convert, become a slave, or die. But Dhimmi, D-H-I-M-M-I, is a very interesting thing that most people aren't aware of, which is still really part of Islamic worldview and Islamic law, is non-Muslim monotheists, primarily Jews and Christians, but also Zoroastrians, because you believe in one God, Islam says, we allow you to practice your faith, but you're basically a second-class citizen. You have to wear a special sign or a badge to distinguish you as being different. You have to pay a special tax, a very heavy poll tax called the jizya. You can't testify in court against Muslims. You can't employ them as servants. You have to step into the gutter when they're walking on the sidewalk. You can't ride an animal and be higher. If your synagogue or church is allowed to be built, it has to be subterranean or semi-subterranean to show its inferiority to Islam. It's really like Islamic apartheid. The unique facet of oh, the Umayyad dynasty is that they chose not to adhere to Islamic law strictly. And therefore, they allowed, because when the Muslims conquer Spain, the Jews actually follow into the, follow into Spain with them. Before that, Spain was, you know, was um, Visigoth. It was Germanic peoples who would, who would actually settled in Spain and became very oppressive of, of, of Jews, especially. So the Jews welcomed uh, the arrival of Islam, which at the time, as opposed to it was very enlightened and open. And therefore, I mean, that's a very long-winded answer to get to a question you're asking is a unique feature of this period of time was that the Umayyad dynasty, which is basically the Caliph of Cordoba in Spain, primarily focused on the city of Cordoba, was allowed Jews and Christians to basically do their stuff freely and openly. And Jews were therefore allowed pretty much to ascend to whatever level of success that they wanted to, whatever field they wanted to, combined with the fact that, unlike today where the Islamic world has kind of closed and reactionary, it's an, another interesting feature of what's happened, is the Islamic world was far more enlightened, at least parts of it, a thousand years ago than it is today. Unlike the Christian world, which was much more closed a thousand years ago and is not even, is not only more enlightened, but is really not really Christian. Europe is only minimally, you know, veneer Christian. So Islam was very open and progressive and made many great strides in science and philosophy and mathematics and medicine. It's a whole huge topic we should probably go into more. And Jews played a major role in that, contributing to that. And kind of a similar vision of what Jews did in the Enlightenment in Europe when they were finally emancipated. But in this case, it's unique in that it wasn't done in such a secular way. You had a really amazing symbiotic relationship at this period of time, which I do not believe has ever been duplicated at any period of time in the last 2,000 years of Jews living amongst non-Jews. As you just mentioned, so what were the Jewish intellectual features of that age? How did, uh, in terms of, as you said, secular philosophy and, and thinking and also in Jewish philosophy and thought? Right, so it's another interesting pattern is today you have a very strong separation in the, like the more religious the Jewish world is, the less open it is to uh, secular studies, so to speak. You find both in the Islamic world and in the Jewish world at the time a much greater openness, a holistic kind of worldview, uh, because again, the secular studies was not viewed as, whereas in the Enlightenment in Europe, you often have many attacks against religion in general as being anti-intellectual, closed-minded and not in keeping with modern science and backward and ossified. 
Back then, there was no conflict, which I think, by the way, personally, is it can't, there can't be really a conflict between things like science and math and religion. If it's all truth on a spiritual or physical or scientific level, it should all merge together. So what you have in this world of Islam, which was quite open and far less reaction and fanatical than it later becomes, is a great interest in classical knowledge. Remember, the, the we assume that the further we go in history, the more technologically advanced people are, and they always have. It's always better later. It's that's another big topic, but the reality is, is of, of the Roman Empire was far more technologically advanced, orderly, and civilized than Europe of a thousand years ago. And with the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West in 475, when it was overrun by Germanic peoples, Europe goes into what's called the Dark Ages. The Roman Empire contracts. They controlled the entire Mediterranean 2,000 years ago. And all of that accumulated knowledge of not just Rome, but of Greece and everything that came before is largely lost to a world which declines in so many, intellectually and scientifically in many ways. And that early Islamic world, a lot with the help of Jews, by the way, and Christian scholars, uh, is really interested in rediscovering that knowledge and expanding on it. When I say rediscovering, obviously it's not written in Arabic, which is the language that 90% of the Jews of the world spoke Arabic a thousand years plus ago. That was the language. Now, today we talk about Yiddish in Eastern Europe, but the international language of the, the Middle East and Spain was Arabic. I mean, Jews spoke other languages too, but the, the classical knowledge was not in Arabic. So Jews were very involved together with Christians and other Islamic scholars in translating Greek and Latin works into Arabic, by the way, sharing them with Jews in Europe who reintroduced them later back into European society and were largely the seed, the trigger, the catalyst for much of the reawakening of knowledge in the Renaissance. But it also is involved in, it's not just a question of rediscovering what was lost. There was a tremendous amount of innovation, mathematics and science and, and medicine. And Jews played the key roles in these fields because unlike uh, medieval Europe, where Jews are locked out of professions and trades, uh, Jews who are always traditionally uh, better, liter more literate people and more international in that we have connections and access all over the world because Jews were scattered around the world and generally multilingual because we are always living as strangers in other countries. We communicate amongst each other in Hebrew, but we learn the local languages, be it Latin, Greek, Arabic, whatever. The Jews were like a really, really key position to act as translators, innovators, and contribute uh, in math, in science, in medicine. And even what's most interesting of all is the interest that they had, especially the Islamic world, in poetry. And used to have these like poetry slam con you know, contests, like you have rap competitions. And it was all the beautiful use of the Arabic language, and Jews excelled in this. And some of these great Jewish scholars were also great Jewish poets. It's, I know it sounds kind of weird, a rabbi doing rap, but this is what was going on. So you have a situation which I do not believe has ever been duplicated since, of an Islamic world which was deeply religious yet very open, combined with a Jewish world which was very religious and welcomed into that open world and did not view any conflict with secular studies. Rather, it all worked together beautifully. And you have this amazing synthesis and creativity uh, that benefited, it's, again, symbiotic. It benefited the Jews who, uh, who achieved tremendous levels of prosperity and, and productivity. And even political power, people like Hastai ibn Shaprut, who was the, who was the vizier. He was a like commander of the army of the Caliph of Cordoba in the 10th century.
And he was a doctor, and he was a rabbi, and he was a philosopher, and he was a poet. He's like, his mother must have been so happy. He has like the trifecta of everything. So it was a very unique period of time, something I would have loved to go back and see in all of its uh, glory, the Islamic world at the, height of, uh, at the height of this golden age in Spain. What are just a, maybe a few examples of personalities that really stick out um, in Jewish history and perhaps who are still remembered um, in Islamic history? Well, I'm not, I don't think the Islamic history mentions them so much, but someone like Hasta Ibn Shapur is clearly the best example of all of them. No Jew was able to achieve such positions of influence and power and, 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 it, and, as a, and as a religious Jew. He didn't have to compromise on his connection to his faith in order to achieve in so many other fields. Um, and he is lucky enough to do it at a time when it's the golden age of Spain. We're talking about the 10th century. And the, 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 the Caliph of Cordoba, whose name was Al-Rahman, that he was able to do that. His father was also, and also a very successful businessman. So you could be sort of, another great example, of course, which who's the best known of all is Maimonides, the Rambam. But Maimonides, uh, who is, you know, born in the earlier part of the 12th century, 1135, and he dies in 1204, he is on the cusp. He's actually at the end of, really past the golden age. So while he's able to achieve position of, of great status, being the physician to Salah al-Din al-Ayubi, who, but this is not in Spain anymore. This is now in, in Cairo, which, but the, this is at least a Jew achieving a, a position of great status uh, as greatest doctor of his age and one of the greatest rabbis of all time in that situation. But he had to, his family had to flee from Spain, which is where he was born in Cordoba, because uh, by that period of time, more fanatically, newly Islamicized Berbers from North Africa called the Al-Muhadis basically crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and took over much of Spain and were much less tolerant and open. So these are the kind of personalities that, you know, we really, we really focus on as people who achieve. But Hasna Ibn Shapur, by, you know, the Ibn Ezra, also another great example. Um, but these are people who are better known in Jewish circles. I think the Maimonides has unique status in in the Islamic world, the, less than the Islamic world, the Christian world is a great philosopher, uh, recognized universally. What are the arguments that contend that the golden age is actually a myth? And how do you refute those arguments? Um, I'm not really familiar. The golden age was a myth. I mean, people might maybe oversimplified. I'm not familiar okay. with people saying it never happened. Right. I mean, everything is nuanced. Jews, even in their best situation, always had to be wary. There were backlashes against Jews rising to position of prominence. It was not always so fantastic. You know, dynasties changed. There was external pressure. You know, Islamic Spain was also, from the very beginning, the Christians were reconquering the country. So, um, but clearly, uh, if you look at it objectively, in my opinion, you see that despite all the fact, because it's never, it's always more nuanced. It's not, you know, we wash the board with one brush and everything is perfect and rosy and fantastic. There were definitely ups and downs at this period of time and in many periods of time in Jewish history and the different golden ages, like in Poland, there was a golden age. Um, and, but then there was often open, there was open violence and anti-Jewish riots at, at the periods of time in Spain, even during the best of times, resentment from the Muslim majority about the success of Jews. Within, within this Islamic world. 
So it wasn't just all rose-colored rose glasses perfect, but there's no question in my mind that it was, all things considered, one of the best period of time, one of the greatest diaspora experiences for both Jews, but also for the people amongst whom we lived. And that the, we benefited and they benefited in Spain, which starts out as one of the really big proofs that the, it had to have been a golden age, was Spain was really the periphery when Jews first in 711 started settling in Spain following the Islamic conquest. This was as far out, you know, we say in the Yiddish, the Gehakt of Inde, you know, it's like the end of the earth there. The center of the Jewish world was Babylon. And they had to really work hard to get some rabbis to settle in Spain and bring some Torah infrastructure in that would allow a Jewish community to expand and thrive and prosper there. But we see by the time we fast forward uh, several hundred years later, you could argue that Spain is really the center of the Jewish world. The fact that so many of what we call the Rishonim, these rabbis who were from basically about the year the beginning of the 11th century to the expulsion from Spain in 1492, it's, it's uh, you know, about a 400-year so, or so period, 500-year period, that those these are the greatest scholars, with the exception of people like Rashi, who was in France and Troyes outside Paris. I mean, the, the, the vast majority of these people are, 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 are Sephardic Jews, and a huge number of them are actually in Spain itself. So clearly... This must have been a, a, a not just a spiritual level, an academic, you know, Torah level, but on an intellectual and economic and scientific and level, a, a, a very positive, good period for for Jews and for the larger population amongst whom we live. Shifting now, um, the state of world Jewry in Christian Europe during this period of the Middle Ages. Right. So that's another thing that. We, that people don't appreciate, you know, pre-Holocaust, you know, close to 90% of the Jewish world's population were Ashkenazim because we had a massive population switch. It didn't take place overnight. It took place over centuries. But uh, a thousand years ago, again, the vast majority of Jews are living in what we call the Edota Mizrach. We tend to use the word Sephardi, which means, which means Spain, but the majority of the Jews were not living in Spain. Spain was a central community, but they were living in the oldest diaspora community, Babylon, which is today Iraq and Persia and North Africa, and you name it. Um, so a minority of Jews, I mean, Jews are living in what we call the Ashkenazi Jewish world. Ashkenazi means German, but uh, it's really more generally speaking Jews who lived amongst Christians. But before it was Christian, they were living in the Roman Empire because the the, the scattering of Jews, the, the first diaspora community is Babylon, but by the time you get to the Second Temple period, that's a community that arises out of the destruction of the First Temple. By the time you get to the Second Temple period, which is primarily domination of Rome, although first the Greeks come along, um, Jews are scattered throughout the Mediterranean, and maybe a third of the Jews in the world are living in Israel, another two-thirds are a lot in Babylon, but all throughout. We find evidence of Jewish communities in Europe going back 2,000 years, in the Rhineland in Germany, some of the oldest communities. The difference being with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in 475, which is based in Rome, I'm not talking about Constantinople today, Istanbul, the Byzantine Empire, the general situation in the empire was not good because the central authority of Rome, as oppressive as it may have been to us, produced a lot of stability, and stability is necessary for economic growth and expansion of population, and everything kind of broke down. And cities became largely emptied out of their people, and people went back to more subsistence level, and Europe goes into the Dark Ages. 
It's a combination of collapse of central authority, a lot of political instability, the rise of Christianity, which early Christianity is extremely hostile to Judaism, um, and a lot of basically superstitious peasants uh, means that G and Jews basically do not fare anywhere near as well, and it actually gets worse as it goes on. Um, early church fathers of Christianity are very hostile towards Jews. Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, you, write what, you see what they write about Jews, it's horrible. And as Europe is faced with any number of issues like the Black Death and things like that going back, <clears throat> and once you get to around the year 1000 or so, you're going to have open violence unleashed against Jews. So what the small Jewish population, which is only in the tens of thousands throughout all of Christian Europe, suffers very harshly. Uh, economically, Jews are going to be locked out of professions like guilds. Jews are always very skilled craftsmen and things like glass blowing is largely a Jewish art form. You know, silversmiths, any of these skilled professions, Jews have always done very well in. But as these Christian trade guilds emerge, Jews will largely be locked out of them and Jews will suffer through any number of, uh, you know, pieces of legislation and, and even violent attacks against us that will make the situation worse and eventually explodes into open violence. Phenomenon such as blood libels, pogroms, expulsions, is that at that period exclusively a Christian phenomenon? That's a great question. Um, yes. It's interesting, by the way, to understand the, when you look at the animus, the negative side of Islamic view of Jews versus the Christian view, you know, it goes back, the relationship of Jews and Islam goes back to the relationship of Muhammad and the Jews in the Arabian Peninsula in the 7th century. And, you know, there's actually a, a huge amount of Jews. 90% of the Jews in the world are living in the Middle East at the time. And Muhammad actually fights even battles. And you read about the story of the Jews of Haibar, you know, the Pact of Omar. All these things come out of these early relationships. But in every situation that Muhammad's armies fight with Jews, the Jews lose. And eventually the Jews are totally subjugated. So the Quran views has a positive view of like Judaism in general, but a negative view of Jews in being people who will are smart and will steer you away from the truth. The ultimate truth being, of course, that Muhammad is the you know is the seal, the final prophet. So Jews are never viewed as physically threatening. They're viewed as being intellectually deceptive. Um, so Muslims are not like scared of Jews, but if you go back to the relationship of Jews with Christianity, the dark side of that relationship begins with a gospel narrative related to Jews conspiring to get, you know, make sure to get Jesus killed, which is one of the most destructive accusations leveled against Jews is the Christ killer accusation. And, you know, Christianity being in many ways a dualistic faith. I'm not talking about Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I'm talking about the notion of good comes from God and bad comes from the devil. Uh, the devil is viewed much more powerfully in Christianity. And Judaism has an idea of Satan, the accusing angel, but Judaism has a clear view that God is all-powerful. No one competes with, with the creator of the universe. He has no adversaries or rivals. Um, but the Satan, this fallen angel, is like fighting with God. Satan is the only guy who can sometimes best God. And, you know, you know, who, you know who fights with and, and the Jew will eventually be conflated into the Jew is a physical threat. Look, he got Jesus killed. Look, the Jew poisons wells. The Jew brings the Black Death to Europe. We're talking about, like, you know, in the 14th century, things like that. Blood libel starting in 1144 in Norwich in England. 
the Jew will kidnap Christian babies, uses blood to bake matzah. The Jew is viewed from its, the very inception of Christianity as a physical threat. He was a physical threat to Jesus. He is the devil. The Jew is literally, the devil is literally portrayed in medieval and Renaissance art as a Jew, meaning you've got the, the Jewish nose, the, the cloy feet, and he's got the little circle sign on all the artwork, the circle Jews in medieval Europe, the Star of David, which the Nazis made Jews wear, is a relatively modern thing. But Jews being forced into money lending had to wear a coin sign. So traditionally, the, the view of a Jew in Christian world is much scarier. Jew is a threat. He can kill us. He'll kidnap your children, use their blood to bake matzah. He'll poison your wells. He'll bring disease to your country. That will morph into modern accusations of he will control the world and your governments. He will drag your country into war and yada, yada, yada. Uh, such accusations don't exist within Islam. But... But that also explains largely the shock of the Islamic world that Israel's victories. Fast forward to 1940 and 67, the Jew is cowardly, he doesn't fight. Um, but with the advent of Zionism, Islamic and Arab nationalism, and the Mufti, the Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj al-Mina Husseini, who the British put in the early 20th century when they controlled Palestine after World War I, they put him as the chief Muslim cleric in Jerusalem. The Mufti was a rabid anti-Semite, the al-Husseini family, um, and uh, he was a close friend and ally of Adolf Hitler. And the Mufti will import into the Middle East the classic European animus and fear of Jews. That now today you have in Gaza, you know, Israeli soldiers kill Palestinians to harvest their organs to sell on the international organ exchange. Or there's even TV shows shown on Arabic television, you know, reenacting a Jew kidnapping a, a, a non-Jew and using his blood to bake matzah. So... Whereas initially you had a strong separation and you had, and had nowhere near that level of fear and animus in the Islamic world, unfortunately today it's more prevalent in the Islamic world collectively because it's being spread around than it is in what is at least the, the Christian world of today, which is less Christian. We're still accused by you know the, both extremes, the right and the left, of all kinds of nefarious things. But uh, traditionally there were very different attitudes. <clears throat> As we move through history and there's the beginnings of emancipation in Europe, uh, breakdown of, of the ghetto. Do we see a similar phenomenon in the Islamic world? Well, the Islamic world has the opposite. There's an Arabist called David Price Jones who wrote a book called The Closed Circle. And he made, he made a great point. He said that the, the, uh, it's sort of the, the Islamic world has gone in retrograde. It's gone backwards. You have, you have a, a meeting point about a thousand years ago when you have a switch over, when Europe moves out of the Dark Ages into the Renaissance, again, largely helped by Jews in reintroducing classical knowledge and reawakening the humanistic spirit um, and moving forward to the Enlightenment and, and the modern world of today. The Islamic world, which I know because I know it's very, the world is, Europe is very self-flagellating. Look what we've done. You know, the Islamic world, it's, from the Crusades onward, really, uh, the Islamic world has gone in the opposite direction, become more fanatically Muslim, with some exceptions, less open and less tolerant to foreigners and to minorities within their cultures. Again, this is, I'm, I'm <laughs> taking with very broad brushstrokes, because different Islamic dynasties and countries treated their Jews differently. Um, but it's not, by the way, because of Europe, it's not because of European aggression. It's one of those things we need to point out, that Islam is the, the greater aggressor historically. Fact. Islam, unlike Christianity, and I, love, I always point this out when I'm teaching, 
Christianity, we Jews don't believe in physical or spiritual conquest of the world. We believe in maintaining our particular identity and influ influencing the world as role models, whether we are in our own country or scattered around the world like a farmer scattering seed and fertilizing other civilizations. Christianity does not believe in physical conquest of the world, which doesn't mean that Christian kings like, you know, Ferdinand, his most Catholic majesty of Spain in the name of Jesus, taking over all of South and Central America and doing massive damage to civilizations and cultures that are there, but it's not a Christian imperative. Um, Islam believes in the physical and spiritual conquest of the world. I would say more of the physical than even the spiritual. Islam was less into converting people primarily because if we keep them as, as dimmy, we can tax them. Uh, Christian, Christianity was more interested in converting people. But uh, so you have these, so you have a different relationship with, with this idea of how we deal with other people's that we conquer, and um, the Islamic world, since its inception, has been on the march physically. It overruns the Middle East. It takes over the Persian Empire. It takes over North Africa. It takes over Christian Spain. It's only stopped in 732 in the Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France in the Battle of Tours when Charles Martel, Charlemagne's father, wins one of the most important victories in, in human history. Had the Muslims won in that battle, they would have crossed the Pyrenees and taken Europe. And between coming from Istanbul in the east, you know, from that side and in the west, it could have been, that could have been the end of Christianity. So the Crusades was largely a reaction to Islamic expansionism, as violent and as brutal as it was against Jews and Muslims. Uh, it's it's that that the Islamic world has really been on the march and been and been uh, conquering, trying to conquer the Christian world. And I kind of thought I kind of. I kind of went on a digression and digression. I forgot exactly what, what question we're talking about now. We were just, I was explaining, that's an attitude that, uh, but, but, what, what, but basically when we look at these two worlds, we see that the Islamic world, because of whatever external or internal factors are going on with the Islamic world, whether it's people like the Al-Muhadis who are Berbers who are fanatically Islamic and not very cultured people, um, you know, like, when people become newly observant of faith, they're often the most fanatic people. They're the most dangerous and intolerant. So you have waves of different groups of Muslims who are very, very uh, fanatically into their religion. Um, uh, so what you what you see basically is is that the Islamic world is going to retrograde into closed-mindedness and lose a lot of its openness to the contributions of other people and a lot of openness to science and mathematics and, and basically go back into the dark age where the Christian world, which is not locked in that closed circle, will advance out of it. And you'll see that the Jews will, again, be much in a much better position to benefit from Europe opening up, opens up more opportunities and more tolerance towards them, while the Jews in the Arab world or you know the Middle East uh, wherever Islam is controlling, will generally find themselves often in a, in a worse position. Do we have any indication Catholic Spain um, conversions, importance of, of, of Jews perhaps joining the faith? Do we have any indication throughout history of Jews converting to Islam, Jews converting to Christianity, whether forced or voluntarily? Is there a difference? We don't have a lot of voluntary conversion at this period of time. You'll get later in Europe, with the Enlightenment, Jews converting not out of a love of Christianity, but of a desire to advance their 
careers like Heinrich Hein, the great German author, whose real name was Chaim Hein, in the early 19th century, who wrote an essay called My Ticket to Western Civilization, because although the Emancipation, Napoleonic Wars, in theory granted Jews civil rights, there were often there were there were still a lot of restrictions on Jews in many countries. If you go back earlier in time to whether it's Christian Europe or um, or uh, Islamic Spain, the conversions are almost always. I mean, there's no reason to convert if everything is open to you. The only reason to convert would be out of fear for your life or of losing everything or out of a desire to advance yourself because the restrictions leveled against you. So you don't find in these periods of time, whether it's in Spain under the Christians in 1492, and the forced conversions begin before that, with the reconquest of Spain, which takes several hundred years, and the Inquisition begins 100 years before the expulsion, um, Jews will definitely be converting, but it's usually to save their lives or to survive physically, economically, in, a very, in a, an environment that's now very restrictive. Once these Jews convert, generally what you find is that within a generation or two, they, they not only assimilate completely, because some of them are crypto-Jews, meaning they openly espouse Islam or Christianity, and then secretly practice Judaism, but they generally will assimilate and be gone. And their influence disappears also, like the Cresca family, which from Mallorca in Spain, which created the Catalan Atlas, which was the, the, the map the maps used by all the great explorers, the Gama and you know, Vespucci, and all these people use this atlas. This is a family that eventually will con, you know, convert to Christianity and disappear, and, they, and their influence and their impact will disappear with them converting and disappearing into a larger Christian world. That Jewish drive seems to dissipate as they no longer are identified as Jews anymore. So you, you do have such a situation going on. Uh, but again, it, 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 you, in the modern world, you don't have the forced conversion thing anywhere near as much as you have Jews doing it out of a desire, not out of a love of Jesus and a recognition that Christianity is the true faith. I'm sure it occurs occasionally, but out of a desire to save their skin or to advance their careers or, or to even be able to allow to stay in the countries in which they're living. And by the way, sometimes some of these people become some of the biggest enemies of the Jewish people because they sort of go out of their way to show their loyalty. It's a rare, few exceptions, but you have these things, like the famous debate in Spain, the dis disputation, where a Jewish apostate, Pablo Christiani, challenges the Nachmanides to a debate, the Ramban, in front of King James of Spain, that kind of thing. Few things are worse than Jews, than Jews or Gentile, Gentile, than being a Gentile in human history. You've described, um, in this um, historical reversal, Golden Age, Islam, retrograde, Christianity advances, but then we have the Shoah, we have the Holocaust. How does this fit into this historical movement? Right. So again, the difference between, if you want to compare Enlightenment Europe, where Jews were fantastically over-accomplished. I mean, we Jews, one of the great features of being Jewish is we, you know, Thou shalt innovate is like the 11th commandment. Abraham was a radically transformative, think outside the box kind of guy. And I have a whole presentation called Driven, talking about the unique Jewish spiritual DNA, which is not something you can measure in a, in a microscope. But wherever we put Jews, we're always disproportionately impactful because you know, we have this unique way of thinking outside the box. Jews always question, and an incredible drive. And Jews also, by the way, care disproportionately usually about everyone else but themselves. These are features that you can demonstrate exist. 
And in, in, in any situation we are in, whether it's that, you know, over a thousand years ago in, in the golden age of Spain or a hundred or 200 years ago in Europe, we see the same characteristics. The question is uh, what's going on in the background. And the big difference, as I mentioned before, is when Europe moves from the dark ages, which is deeply religious, by the way, and very fearful of Jews, but not so open intellectually to the Renaissance, which is more humanistic and more focusing on, you know, reintroduction of, of the classical knowledge and the mathematics and the science. And some of it, a lot of it was coming from the Arab innovations of the Islamic open world. Um, Europe moves away from religion, and it takes a long, long time. The Napoleonic Wars are the critical time period in the 19th century when Jews are finally let out of the ghettos and finally, in theory, emancipated. But that comes at a unlike in Spain and the, in the Golden Age, where Jews are able to maintain their, their Judaism openly and proudly without it being in conflict with their, you know, their progressing in a larger society. In Europe, as Europe itself doesn't become secular overnight, but certainly religion plays a, takes a back seat to a lot of other things, unlike in you know, the Dark Ages, where religion was the central feature of European life. Um, Jews felt that to, to enter these, the society, that the religion, keeping kosher, keeping Shabbat, if I, I need to, it was all about I need to really assimilate into this world. The reform movement was created in Hamburg, Germany in 1811 out of a desire to create a version of Judaism which allowed Jews to minimize their external Judaism, their practice and their lifestyle, put that all aside and remove any barriers that allowed them to fully integrate, which is even a nice way of saying assimilate ultimately into what was European and specifically German world. So you have a I would say even a greater level of accomplishment of these Jews, but at a far higher price of Jewish identity and a far greater amount of assimilation and even conversion in certain cases. So it's a very different experience, and we see that even until today in the Jewish world, in the Orthodox world, especially the ultra-Orthodox world, the Haredi worlds, incredible fear of modernity is a, I would say, collective post-traumatic stress reaction to what the trauma that Jews went through, not physical threats, but the massive toll that the Enlightenment took on, on Jewish identity and assimilation. And it created a world today which is much more inwardly focused and self-ghettoized, much less open to bringing in foreign influence. So what you don't see in the last few hundred years amongst Ashkenazi Jewish scholarship, which becomes the center of the Jewish world rabbinically, is these Renaissance kind of philosopher rabbi people. You have a few people like the Vilna Gon who managed to, you know, absorb a tremendous amount of secular knowledge, but not through direct study himself, but people, students teaching him, reading books on the side, but it's a very rare thing. The rabbis become exclusively rabbis and very rarely will wander outside of that area, and we don't find that level of kind of uh, Renaissance scholar and all like Hatzdeus and Shaput, Maimonides, and people like that in the Ashkenazi world of today, even until today. Does the historic relationship between um, the Jewish community and the Muslim world, the Golden Age, do you believe that that offers a paradigm of how things could be, should be, or how Jewry should approach the non-Jewish world at large? Uh, Definitely insofar as, again, we're dealing with a less than ideal situation. We have to remember that ideally Jews are supposed to all be in Israel and all be living a Jewish life. But insofar as it deals with the issue of 
how to live in diaspora, certainly that is the, that is the ideal, that's the role model we'd like to have is Jews being able to. And, and by the way, you see this closest in the Orthodox Jewish world in America, which is the largest diaspora community, uh, where Jews can be fairly f well integrated and f freely operate within a society, a larger society that's very tolerant and open of them where there's no persecution. Um, but again, you don't find that same level of accomplishment. If you look at the yeshiva world of America today, you don't find people excelling in science and doctors and things like that. But at least you find them fully participating uh, while maintaining their own particularism and living within certain communities like Lakewood or Borough Park or wherever you want to look at Pico Robertson in L.A. So that model has been kind of reproduced, but I don't think we're going to see that kind of relationship in the diaspora ever being reproduced again because the nature of the Orthodox world is no longer open to being that open to the rest of the world. Where I do see it's interesting is in Israel's relationship in general with its Arab neighbors in the Abraham Accords. That's the area where I think, and even granted, it's not, Israel's not a religious state per se, but here you have a very strongly religious, like, you know, the Emirates, and Bahrain, these are very religious people. They're Bedouin, basically. They dress very modestly. They're, but they're, and they're a very conservative culture, by the way. It's interesting how open they are to creating like a giant Disney world in the Middle East, especially Bahrain, which wants to get 40 million tourists in their country. Um, I think it's Bahrain or Dubai. And I can't, I'm always confusing who's doing what there. This built the most beautiful, like a seven-star hotel. They maintain their own extreme particularism but are extremely welcoming of everything foreign in their country, especially because it brings a massive amount of money. But they'll have, their women will walk around covered to the hilt, but they'll have islands, palm islands, with, of Europeans running around in bikinis. So, and, and you also have a tremendous interest in recognizing what the Jewish people and the Jewish state has to offer. So you have a great symbiotic relationship where they're totally willing to, now you have people, it's something you wouldn't have even 10 years ago. You have synagogues and Jewish communities opening up in Arab countries. And people wanting to go there and even move there and live there and do business there in a, in a place that is actually in many ways more stable and safer and greater economic opportunities for Jews living outside of Israel than any place in Europe today. So is, that's... Is, is, this, is this a result of, of a shift in Islam or is this more because perhaps the leaders of those countries are educated in the West they want to be perceived as being more culture. They want to fit in more. Is there a shift in Islam now? In, in I don't think it's a shift. They're just wising up to the fact that um, they can't rely on oil. And uh, they need to expand outside to become a hub for tourism, tourism for investment, for technology, whatever you can do. Uh, but they still, it's interesting, they are able to really maintain a very strong particularist ideology. I mean, you go to places like UAE, like almost everyone working there is not, you know, actually a member of the tribes, these families that run the country, they're a small minority of the population, it's all foreign workers. But it's a, it's a, it's a realization that oil's not going to last forever, and we got to think outside the box and be smart and, and be open. I'm actually very impressed with their ability I mean, we should use that in a certain sense. We should look at it. The Orthodox Jewish world should recognize it. You can do this too. You know, you can actually, you don't have to be so reactionary. You can preserve your particularism while being, while, pro, while benefiting from creating a more open world around you. And it's a good symbiotic relationship. Their countries are going to do great because of it. It's going to be a win-win. And uh, it's opening up a whole new area of investment and, and innovation.
innovation in a part of the world that's been so lacking in it for literally a thousand years. But if they're not doing it at the expense of their commitment. Now, long term, it's, it's too early to tell. Will this erode their traditional lifestyle? Will they be able to do it? I don't know. Not, I don't live in that world. I'm not privy to it. I don't speak. My Arabic is nowhere near good enough to read their press. Um, but it's interesting that they're trying to do something that no one else in the world is, is really trying to do. No other faith is certainly trying to do that. Christianity is dying in Europe and only surviving in Africa and South and Central America. Jews are becoming, the Orthodox Jewish world has become more particularist, especially in Israel, while the rest of the Jewish world is disappearing, especially in diaspora in America. Um, so, yeah, the question would be, as someone who's living in Israel now 41 years, whether the Orthodox Jewish world, especially the Ashkenazi world, can move out of its insular worldview and be, have less fear factor and realize that we can be more welcoming and interactive, I think that would be the best thing for Israel. I think it's the, the great hope of Israel, and I think it's necessary, vital for the future of Israel that that happen, because such a, such a closed world is not economically sustainable. And it, it causes great divisions within Israeli society to have groups of people that so little interact with each other as the secular Israeli world of Tel Aviv and the very insular Orthodox world of places, especially like Meisharim and Geula and B'nai B'rach. So, uh, yeah, very Your contentions, because if, if you look throughout history, you look at, you know, what we would, what we perhaps would look at and say, these are Maimonides, enlightened. But yet, as you just pointed out, what's happening in some of the Gulf states Maimonides uh, did not give up an inch in terms of his belief and Jewish traditional law and adherence. You know, you know. So if you really look at it, he had that, but yet he was able to do more and go beyond. Is that what you're referring to in terms of exactly? But it means it, it, it's a whole other interesting discussion. Um, I have like ten PhD theses I'm never going to get to write, but they're all fascinating. The Ashkenazi Jewish world, interesting, the Sephardi world, even though the vast majority of Jews became Ashkenazi as the expulsion from Spain and, and European, and then they were expelled from Western Europe to Eastern Europe, and then from the last 500 years, Eastern Europe pre-Holocaust became the center of the Jewish world. Um, that The Sephardi world that survived became less intellectually creative um, because the, uh, the, Arab, the world amongst which we live, Jews always, you can't live in a vacuum. Um, when you live in an enlightened world, the enlightenment of the outside seeps into your culture and opens up more opportunities for subcultures and subgroups to be to take advantage of that. The, the, when the, the, the Muslim world kind of goes into this retrograde, you know, doctors and lawyers are not really jobs you have in the Middle East. It's like a very third world. It becomes a very third world backward place, which ultimately is colonized largely by Europeans. Um, but what happens is that, that world up until modern times and the, you know, the anti- Jewish violence that's triggered by the birth of Israel and the rise of Zionism in the 20th century, that Sephardi world, while it goes, it doesn't, it loses its great innovation. You have much fewer great Sephardi rabbis, much fewer Jews there, and much, much fewer economic, like all the Nobel Prize winners of the last, you know, 100 years, of which Jews were at 0.2% of the world's population, have 22% of the Nobel Prizes, is like, I think, probably like 100% Ashkenazi. Um, so... But that Sephardi world never went through the massive trauma that the Ashkenazi Jewish world has gone through for a thousand years. And it maintained a level of openness and normalcy until modern times, which was much more inclusive. 
whereas the Ashkenazi world first goes through physical trauma at the hands of non-Jews and then massive spiritual trauma at the hands of the Enlightenment and secular Jews, be they reform, the reform movement, secular Zionism, um, the communist, Bundist, left-wing Jews, who are all attacking mainstream traditional orthodoxy, as we call it today, on a spiritual level. So it's, we start bleeding out Jews in massive numbers, not physical blood, but spiritual blood and loss. So that Jewish world has largely self-ghettoized and lost its ability to be like a Maimonides, to achieve. You, never, you almost never meet like I took, I'm a tour guide. I took a guy out on tour a few days ago who's a doctor. He's an internal medicine guy. And he's a very religious looking guy. And he's the black clothing and the hat and everything. And he said like, and of course, and I, I said, I've never met an ultra-Orthodox Jew who's raised Orthodox who's a doctor because the, the system is always geared towards learning, 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 learning. And in a Jewish phase, it's secular learn, always at the expense of secular education. Uh, and all the yeshiva guys that I know from Lakewood and stuff are all in businesses now, like the Sephardim we're in, because white-collar jobs are not open to them because they lack the academic credentials. They're all doing investments and nursing homes and all kinds of business opportunities. So we seem to have lost the role models or the desire or the ability or the willingness or the openness to recreate those kind of uh, Jews who lived in a place like Spain thousand years ago plus who could be the best the best of the best of Jews as rabbis and Torah scholars and incredibly innovative people making a difference in this world and other areas which I think would be great by the way I think that'd be the biggest kiddush Hashem would be to have Jews who can make an impact and make a difference in the world outside that area and interact in the, with the non-Jewish world on a, just like Israel does so, so much innovation which the world benefits from which reflects well in Israel the Jewish world as a Jewish world would be, I think, it would be better for us internally and certainly better for the world externally if we were able to do that. This has been fascinating. We, we did a very broad, broad look at you know, Jewish history, Jews, Muslims, Jews, Christians, and uh, hopefully maybe at, at some point we can go through some of the 10 PhD topics that uh, <laughs> are on your desk and, and tackle those in the future as well. So again, Rabbi Ken Spiro, thank you. Uh, again, the books that we mentioned of, of, of Rabbi Spiro, we urge all our listeners and viewers to take a look at them. World Perfect, Crash Course in Jewish History, Why a Tiny Nation Plays Such a Huge Role in History, and Rabbi Spiro's articles, all different publications, and of course, on, on the Asia Torah site. Rabbi Spiro, again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. By the way, I have a good website of my own, kenspiro.com. All my content is online for okay. free. Kenspiro.com, please go to the website. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye.